We're delighted to have guitarist John Yerby with us today. Welcome, John, to the Duet Partner Podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So Dr. Yerby is a versatile guitarist, educator, and entrepreneur currently residing in Cedar City, Utah, with his wife, Alexandra, and new daughter, Hannah, and pups, Rosie and Charlie. As an adjunct professor at Southern Utah University, Yerby teaches in both the traditional music department and also the Master of Music Music Technology program. And he maintains a private studio with both local students and remote students from around the world. Since the onset of the COVID pandemic, Dr. Yerby has shifted his thinking to remote mediums and is currently working on a web on web-based alternatives to live instruction in an effort to I'm going to read that again, okay? And then I'm going to sure, edit yeah, that. Yeah, I just, no I just stumbled over a couple of words. So let me start, yeah, start at no the beginning problem. again. Dr. Yerby is a versatile guitarist, educator, and entrepreneur currently residing in Cedar City, Utah with his wife, Alexandra, new daughter, Hannah, and pups, Rosie and Charlie. As an adjunct professor at Southern Utah University, Dr. Yerby teaches in both the traditional music department and also the Master of Music Music Technology program. And he maintains a private studio with both local students and remote students from around the world. Since the onset of the COVID pandemic, Dr. Yerby has shifted his thinking to remote mediums and is currently working on web-based alternatives to live instruction in an effort to rebuild his audience and student base. So I'm very excited to have this conversation with you, John, because your biography shows that you are just the perfect person to have on to talk about tips for successfully teaching remotely. But before we get into that conversation, I'd love to know about your background and your teaching philosophy. So would you tell us a little bit about your training, uh, your musical training as a child? Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, as a guitarist, I think it's a little bit inverted from other instruments, like orchestral instruments, like the strings, for example. Uh, I think a lot of uh, people that learn, say, violin, um, you start off with classical music, and and the training is is pretty uh, straightforward and standard there. But with the guitar being such an odd and versatile instrument, um, you know, people often um, start with perhaps popular guitar, folk guitar, you know, steel string or electric. And, and that was me. Um, my, my dad plays guitar, um, and he would always be playing and singing, you know, at the house. And we had a music room set up and, uh, I actually started playing the drums at age five. Um, uh, when I lived in, uh, Germany. And, um, so I took drum lessons. Um, and then when we moved to, we moved to Scotland when I was eight years old and, um, I was fortunate to, my parents were always supportive of me and music, right? Um, and provided that for me um, and would find music teachers and pay for lessons and all that. So that was was really lucky there. I know that there's, you know, a lot of um, kids that don't have that luxury. So, um, and then in Scotland, um, I actually studied percussion with um, one of the percussionists from the, the Scottish, um, what was it, the Royal Conservatory, and we were, he taught me marimba and um, timpani and all sorts of fun things like that. And I was just so young. I was just having a blast with all of it. But I feel like that background and percussion um, helped me a lot because one of the, um, I guess, weaknesses that I've found in, in teaching myself is that often guitarists struggle with rhythm. I don't know why that is. Um, but um, anyway, so 
that's where it all started. And then at some point I had a teacher who was my drum teacher and he also played guitar. So he would teach me um, both. We would do 30 minutes of percussion and then 30 minutes of, of guitar. And, but it wasn't until I was um, 14 or 15 that I discovered the classical guitar. I had no idea what it was. I, I did not grow up in a household that um, listened to classical music. It was, it was popular music, classic rock, you know, um, folk music, Bob Dylan, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so, but I, I knew I loved the guitar and, um, and, and the versatility of it again, but I had not yet been exposed to classical guitar, which is so different in the technique and the way the instrument is built and the repertoire, everything. But I remember I went in for my, my lesson with my, you know, electric guitar teacher and, um, he was sitting there with a nylon string guitar and he was playing this piece called Spanish romance or romanza. It's one of the most famous Mm -hmm. pieces on the classical guitar. It's in movies all the time and that sort of thing. And, you know, he was using the fingers of his right hand in a way that I had not seen. I, I was playing with a pick mostly. Right. Um, and I immediately was just dumbfounded. I was like, what are you doing? That's amazing. You're playing all these different notes at the same time. You're playing the melody, you're playing the, the bass and the, you know, there's a multiple parts to it. And, um, so I was immediately intrigued. And so he at that time said, okay, this is called classical guitar. You've got to use your fingernails of the right hand instead of your pick. So get rid of the pick. We're going to use our fingers from now on. And he, he taught me that, that tune that he was learning himself. He was not a, a classical guitarist. He was just kind of dabbling. And he was taking lessons from a, a man in town uh, by the name of Elario Lozano, who, um, who was an American, but he had a, like an Italian mother and a Spanish father. And um, he lived in Spain for a long time. And he was primarily a flamenco guitarist. Um, but he also then... And in his heyday in Europe, he played on cruise ships and he would sing in like five different languages and play all this, this, um, uh, you know, popular sort of songs, but they were, he was singing in Greek, Italian, French, Spanish. Um, anyway, so my current teacher at the time said, well, if you really want to get serious about this, you need to go to Mr. Ilario and learn from him. He's the local, you know, pro anyway, long story short, um, I, that's when I really got serious and I sort of got bit by the, by the bug, so to speak. Um, and it's, I, I was, I think 14 or 15 at the time. And I was, you know, the kid in my high school that was known as the the guitar kid. I always had my guitar and I was always performing at, you know, open mics or recital, recitals, talent shows. And I played in the, the jazz band and then in the symphonic band as well. Um, and at a certain point, we had to start thinking about college. I went to a, a college prep school and everyone was, you know, going to Brown or Yale or Harvard or uh, medical school, law school. And I was again, the oddball that was heading in the direction of music. And so I was advised by my band teacher and my, the, the school advisor about what music schools there were. And I was so unaware of anything. I had no idea what it really meant to, to study at the college level. Um, but I knew I wanted to, to, to continue with, with guitar. So I, uh, auditioned and applied to the university of North Texas and, um, they were known for their jazz program, one of the best in the country. Um, and I didn't really understand 
that with in, in music, it's a lot about the individual who you go to study with. And I didn't really know anyone in the classical guitar world. Um, I was just so green and so new to everything, but super excited at the same time. Um, so I went there. I went there for two years and then transferred to the University of Texas and studied with a man named Adam Holtzman. By this time, I was getting to know the classical world a little better and in turn also getting more serious about it. And um, so finished my undergrad there at the University of Texas, Austin. And then I had the opportunity to hear a gentleman by the name of Elliot Fisk perform a concert um, in, uh, at the Round Top Music Festival, um, which, is, which was ran by pianist James Dick. And um, <clears throat> at Round Top, I heard Elliot play. And I was just floored. And I'd never heard the guitar played. I mean, I'd, I've been to a lot of concerts, but Elliot is a very unique performer. Um, <clears throat> and I knew that I wanted to study with him. I thought I, that's the man I, would, I really need to learn from. Um, <clears throat> and he was teaching at New England Conservatory in Boston. So prepared my audition program and auditioned there. And fortunately, was accepted and got a scholarship and... Um, did my master's with Elliot there at New England Conservatory, and what an experience that was. I was such a small fish um, in a big pond and was learning from my colleagues, um, my cohort, um, who I felt were all just much stronger musicians than I. And um, But that was great. I was always told if you want to learn, you have to surround yourself with musicians who are better than you. And, and that's what I've tried to do my entire life. Um, and from there, I took a year off after that, and I stayed in Boston and you know, performed and helped Elliot with his uh, Boston Guitar Festival and uh, had a teaching, several teaching jobs and was just happy to be out of school for a little while and living the, living the life. Um, but then I, I decided, you know, prior to that, that I was going to go all the way and get my terminal degree in music since that's, um, well, with a bachelor's degree in classical guitar performance, um, there's not a lot of options <laughs> besides you know, maintaining a private studio, um, which is fine and, and fun. And, um, but I wanted to get my, my doctorate. The dream was to, you know, become a college professor of guitar and to have a thriving teaching studio and then go around the world and play concerts and, and live that dream. Um, so I, I then went to, uh, audition at the, uh, Florida state university in Tallahassee, Florida. And, there's a man uh, teaching there since about 1975 named Bruce Holtzman. Um, and I studied with him for, it took me four years to finish my doctorate. And um, yeah, and that's when I um, reconnected with my wife now who um, was, we went to high school together, but she was, she was in Salt Lake and dancing for Ryrie, Ryrie excuse me, <laughs> Ryrie Woodbury Dance Company. And we reconnected and she was like, wow, you're, you've done all this. You're, you're a musician. I always knew you would be fantastic at that. And, and she was living, uh, you know, she was a, a professional dancer and we really connected on, on that level as both being artists. And anyway, um, so I went to Salt Lake to be with her and that's basically, uh, the story of my education. <laughs> I love it. So what a fantastic journey full of lots of different cultures and lots of different influences and teachers. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I feel yeah. very fortunate to have that diverse education and background. So, yeah. 
So it sounds like you were thinking of teaching and having a studio pretty early on in your education. Would you, is that fair to say? I think so. I think I saw it as a means to an end. I knew that performing was my ultimate end all. Like that's what I wanted to do, but I, I'm a realist, or at least I try to be a realist and know that every, every performer that I admired, every pro had a teaching post somewhere and that was your, your day job. Right. And then, and then you'd play the concerts on the side and, I think there, you know, there are some, some pr- professional guitarists that only perform, but it kind of goes like, you know, when the classical music culture, you go see a concert and then there's a master class the next day with, with the artist and, and, you know, students sign up to, to perform in the master class. So they kind of go hand in hand. And during, during my college years, I needed a job and I could either go you know, um, flip burgers somewhere or teach guitar lessons for a much higher rate. And so I started doing that and quickly discovered that I, I really enjoyed teaching and it was a lot of fun and it made it, it made me become a better musician to teach. And because you're, you know, you, you go through all those things in your mind that you're told and you're trying to put into practice, but when, when you teach them over and over and over again, then they kind of just become part of, you know, part of your everyday routine. Yeah. Um, Tell us so, about your studio now there in um, Southern Utah. How many students sure. do you have? I know we're going to talk about sort of the the global uh, reach right. of your studio, <laughs> but um, how many students do you, do you teach in an average week? Um, so I don't only teach guitar, right? I have my courses at the university that I teach, and I teach uh, music of the world, where we survey and, and learn about music from various cultures around the world. Um, and that though, between those two sections, I have 160 students. Um, and then, but my, f- just talking about guitar, I've got, let's say about seven here locally. And then if I just back up a m- just a little bit, a few years before we moved, or we've been in Cedar city for three years now. And prior to this, we, we lived in Seattle for a couple of years. This is between Salt Lake city and Cedar city. We went to Seattle and my uh, wife was going to grad school there and, I taught for um, a music school slash guitar store. It's one of the one of the only cl- specialized classical guitar stores in in the country. There's just a handful of them left, uh, called Rosewood Guitar. And f- I was fortunate enough to come at a time when another instructor was leaving, and he left me his spot in his studio with about 25 students. So um, I. I was teaching, you know, solely private lessons in Seattle. I wasn't teaching for a university there, but it was great because the, you know, the hourly rate in Seattle that you can, you can command is quite high. So coming here, that's how this, the Skype, the Zoom, the web-based lessons all got started because when I, we, uh, my wife got the position at SUU here and then they hired me as well to teach in the music department. And, but my students in Seattle had been with me for two years and a lot of them wanted to continue. And I said, okay, that's fantastic. Let's do it over Skype. Um, And that was how I got introduced to it. And it was fortunate because when the pandemic happened, I was already teaching in this, you know, in this medium uh, and was used to it. I know like a lot of my colleagues at SUU, when we got thrown into that, it was just like on, you know, we had heard rumors that there's this virus going around. And then about a week after that, it was like, okay, it's here. We're shutting everything down. Everything's going online. Um, and a lot of professors who were not used to this at all kind of 
freaked out a little bit and were really pulling their hair out, trying to get set up and get things to work and get the right lighting and angles and all that stuff. Um, so I've got, uh, um, yeah. And it's expensive see, too. Two, three, four, five, about five more Skype students in addition to my local studio here. And now with the baby, um, that's about all I can handle, um, you know, on a, on a weekly yeah. basis. There's only so many hours in the day, which then brings me to my next idea, right? Where I got to thinking, well, there's only one of me and there's only so many hours in the day and I've got all these other obligations and, you know, things to consider. So how can I teach more people? Yeah. But asynchronous, you know. Right. Well, let, let's stop there for a minute and talk about sure. the challenges that, that you anticipated with COVID already mm-hmm. having been familiar with the remote setup. So as you said, there's a lot of technology, it's mm-hmm. expensive, right? It, it's a whole different skill set than musicians and music teachers are used to using. And it, it was daunting for a lot of people, as you explained. And, and there were challenges mm-hmm. around sound quality and delay, which are Right. Challenges that are unique to to this particular mm-hmm. industry. And it's really impressive that for somebody like you, you really embraced that new reality and it provided you an opportunity to stay connected to your prior students, but also right. mm-hmm. expand your studio. And so now, as you say, you, you have students from outside your local area around mm-hmm. the world and the practice of remote teaching opened up a whole world of students to you. So I'd really love to delve into that a little bit with you and, and, and learn about some of the, the specifics and details of that. So, so, so you were using technology to teach remotely before March of 2020. You said you had these students from Seattle. How -hmm. did you find the confidence to just offer them the opportunity to have remote lessons when that really wasn't right. a thing prior to March of 2020. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it had it had started to become a thing, and I some of my guitar friends were doing this too because it was like you know you go somewhere and you play a concert, and then someone is says, "Oh, I'd really like to have a lesson with you. Do you do you do Skype lessons by chance?" And then you know this as our internet connections improved and. Um, you know, video chatting improved and all that um, it, it so started to, to grow. Um, one of the challenges, though, is, well, well, first and foremost, is connectivity. If you don't have a solid connection on both ends, then it's going to be a problem and you're going to uh, get frustrated students. There's a lag, there's choppy audio. You know, we've, we've all experienced a, a bad, you know, Skype connection or something like that. Um, <clears throat> and then second is, you might have, you know, I might have lights here and uh, a nice microphone that gives crisp, crisp, clear sound um, and alternate cameras for different angles. But the student also has to have a good setup. OK, so that that was initially a big challenge. So I'd have I'd have my own thing set up. But then, you know, the students either using in the worst case a phone propped up against a book <laughs> um, and the audio is, is not so great or it falls over and you're looking at their feet or you know, their hands aren't in good view. So my current um, students have, have taken the initiative to, to get a good setup, right? Like um, I have a meeting here and, and this afternoon with a student in Seattle and she, 
She has a special microphone and a camera, like a webcam, right? That's it's like a USB camera. So all those technology things are a bit of a challenge. And I, I realized that we're not all kind of in the mindset to deal with the tech, right? Especially yeah. musicians, because we're, we're analog. We love to play our instruments <laughs> with our hands and, and let other people worry about microphone placement and, and all that. But yeah, admittedly, I, I do kind of like the technology and I, I, I was excited to learn about it. It was at the same time that I was getting into um, my own recording setup and learning about different microphones and, and how to use interfaces and mm -hmm. using uh, what's referred to as a DAW, you know, D-A-W, a digital audio workstation where you can record. And um, mm -hmm. so I was already kind of headed in that direction and then just continued to, to learn and find, you know, cheap or cheap-ish microphones that do really well. <laughs> and so I use a lot of uh, Rode products um, that are really a great bang for the buck and allows a student to just get a, a decently priced setup that works really well. So do you require or recommend to your students what you want them to have in their own homes so that you can connect with them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if they ask, I don't try to pressure them and say, you must buy this or you must buy that. Um, Cause everyone's of different background, different means and that sort of thing. So, um, and, and I just ask that I'm able to see their hands and, to hear them, you know, um, and, and then if they're like, Hey, I want to, you know, improve my setup, then I'm, I will, uh, recommend things for them or, or help them and send them links and things like that to, to things to purchase. And, yeah. um, and really if, if someone is invested in this format, then they're going to, there's, they're paying money for lessons. So they're going to want to make sure they're getting the, the most out of that. And if it means, you know, a purchase of a microphone and a webcam, then I think that's, that's worth it for, the vast majority of students. What's the most frustrating element to you of teaching these students remotely? <laughs> um, well, one thing is, I mean, when you have a solid connection, right, it's, it's very conversational like we're, like we're doing right now. Um, but when someone, when you're talking and you have an instrument in your hands, there's a lot of sound happening. So, um, Sometimes it's, it's, it's trying to get the student to pause like at a very specific time and be like, okay, right there. No, no, go back a few bars. No, no, right there. Um, that can be a bit of a challenge. Um, but really it's, it's just the quality really. And I think that, um, you know, as like things like, um, what is it called? Uh, fiber, right. Um, fiber optic cable is being installed in, in many large cities and that's improving. I mean, if you could try to imagine, doing this back in the, in the 56 K modem days, you know, um, it would be impossible. There's just not enough. The lag would be too much. Um, other than that, there's, there's a lot of benefits because we, 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 I think at first a lot of us think, Oh, it's, that would always be a second choice, right. To in-person same people, like in, being in the room with someone face to face. And yeah, there are some, some things that you just can't replicate from being, in the same room with someone and being able to perhaps adjust their position or, you know, um, adjust their fingers or, or whatever it might be. Um, but one of the, there, there's several advantages though. And, um, one of those being, uh, being able to record the entire lesson, uh, with just a click of a button. 
Um, and you, the, you then using using an asynchronous for, format like video for so for example, um, I'll have a lesson with a student and we'll be talking about you know maybe some sort of technical issue or hand placement something like that, and I'll kind of make my point over the over the the web right over our our interface whatever Zoom or Skype, and then I'll say okay so I'm going to make you a short video of just a couple minutes long to go over that, that technique that we were talking about. And, and then I'll use my, you know, two cameras and with two different angles at the same time and make just a short video. This is how you do this. And then they can rewatch that as many times as they need to. They can pause it. They can rewind it. You know, they can have it on their phone. They can. So, um, it's kind of like having some like the cliff notes to your actual lesson and then you get this back. So, you know, that's just a, anyone could make videos like that for their students, but when you're already set up for sort of, for a remote situation, then it just makes it that much easier to follow up like that. And then the, yeah. the students sometimes will send follow-up videos back to me and say, okay, how's this? And then they just email me a, a short video clip and I can say, yep, great job. Or, or nope, you still don't, uh, understand. <laughs> um, yeah. but so, yeah. So have, so now that you've done this for a couple of years, it sounds like, what would you advise a new teacher who's interested in teaching remotely or growing their studio remotely? Mm -hmm. What are the best practices that you would pass along? Well, of just like teaching one in person, it's networking. People have to know who you are. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, one of the best ways is obviously social media. Put yourself out there. Um, start a YouTube channel um, where you do little lessonettes, or perhaps you just perform and get your. And then on your on your social media, let it be known that. By the way, I offer you know Skype lessons if you're interested in hearing more or or, or learning more about that particular uh, topic. So that's huge. Is Skype the and, is Skype the platform that you choose. Is that your platform of choice for um, your lessons? It has been, and it's only by default because Skype was like the the colloquial terms, like, oh, you guys want to Skype later, you know? Yeah. Um, now and now then, it's oh, Zoom though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, since, yeah, since COVID and, and all the universities have gone to, and, and businesses, you know, have gone to Zoom. Um, but that's another, that's another thing to explore. Those are just kind of default household names now, Skype and Zoom, but uh, I'm sure that there are other, well, for example, um, Duet Partner <laughs> uh, could be a platform, you know. So there's other options out there now. But yeah, I, I just use Skype by default since a lot of uh, a lot of my students are um, are you know of, of an older generation, and and so I just kind of conform to whatever platform they're used to. Mm -hmm. um, and the quality, though, I would say is roughly the same uh, that I can tell from Zoom and Skype. Um, but as we, um, as this continues to be more, um, common, I think that the, the quality is going to continue to improve. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this masters of technology, music technology program that oh, yeah. you're involved with, um, at it's, one of the university. Fastest, it's one of the fastest growing music programs in the country. It's an entire, entirely online master's degree. Um, and it's focused on uh, music technology. So uh, we have basically two tracks. One is um, 
going towards like studio recording, um, things of that nature, uh, film production, you know, music for film. And then the other track focuses more on music for video games. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's a really a, an incredible program because we get, it's, it's online. So we have students from around the world. Like in last semester, I had uh, a pop star from Vietnam. And once I, I Googled him, I was just blown away. I was like, this guy sells out <laughs> arenas in Vietnam. He's huge in Vietnam. He's like, wow. you know, the, the Barry Manilow of Vietnam. And then um, <laughs> I had the, the, the drummer from, from a, a band, you know, called Nine Inch Nails, which was really popular in the 90s. Sure. He's a professional drummer of 25 years, and now he was retired and having rotator cuff issues, so he wanted to get his master's degree and, and go to university to teach. But So we have courses in recording. Um, biz, I teach business and entrepreneurship, uh, business and branding. Um, and uh, so students learn to use DAWs, as I was referring to before, digital audio workstations. They they learn about scoring and, and for, for TV and film or video games, whatever it might be, and yeah, and students love it. I mean, it, it was just by coincidence that the program started uh, about two years before COVID happened. Hmm. And then COVID happened and, you know, enrollments at universities plummeted at that time because I think people just decided to wait a year till this all blows over. But our enrollment skyrocketed because they're like, oh, I can still do this from my house. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're we're really proud of that that program. And um, it's going really well. Well, I'm really curious about this combination, this unique combination that you have as somebody who plays an instrument that's often sort of associated with uh, a digital realm or pop pop music, mm-hmm. you know, sort of more produced music, right? But you mm-hmm. actually play it mostly in an acoustic, more traditional mm-hmm. style. And I'm really interested in this combination that you have of, of playing an acoustic instrument, but being so involved in music technology. Do you, how do you see those two working together? Together, Do they complement each other? Do they contradict each other? Do you see them working yeah. in harmony or is it a little bit of a, a, a contrast or, or uh Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really great question. And it's, I feel fortunate that I have a foot in both worlds um, because most of my, colleagues in the classical guitar world um, only do that, right? And that's great. Um, my concertizing is is pretty much solely classical guitar, unless I'm doing pit orchestra work or something like that that requires various types of instruments. But um, as far as being a teacher, I think it's it's been very helpful um, to have a background in, say, improvising and know, to know, to feel comfortable doing that. Um, I know that a lot of classical musicians are really hesitate to just to improvise or to, you know, to be in that sort of realm. And so in my teaching, I, I highly encourage if someone is only likes to play rock and roll, I'm like, you know, you should do a little classical. Let's, let's, you know, just learn an easy piece and see how you, you like that technique. But, um, and then same for classical students to be like, have you ever improvised? You know, you know, back in the day in Mozart's time in the 19th century, improv- improvisation was quite common amongst classical musicians, and it's not so much anymore. There's a lot of reasons for that, but um, so I, I feel like these uh, the strength of having classical training uh, serves my ability to teach technique, right? Whether it's 
blues guitar or finger style guitar, like Tommy Emmanuel stuff or whatever it might be, having the the classical approach uh, with with regard to how the hands work is is really helpful there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course with work, you know, the more versatile you are, the more opportunities you you have. And work, um, for example, the Pioneer Theater up in Salt Lake, uh, the music director got in touch with me one year and he said. Um, we're doing um, music, we're doing Sting's uh, musical. It's called The Last Ship, right? Um, Sting went for several years without really uh, coming out with any new material and uh, new recordings or albums. And then he decided to go back to his roots and and write this musical about um, the town in England where he grew up. And so he said, okay, this is, it's it's really great music, and but we need nylon string guitar, steel string guitar, electric guitar, and mandolin. He said, do you play mandolin? And I didn't play mandolin at the time, <laughs> but I just said, yeah, of course I play mandolin. Um, and quickly went out and got a mandolin and, and, you know, learned how to play. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's a fretted instrument. So there's, it wasn't like um, learning something like violin, for example, I definitely could not right. fake that. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, I, you know, I, I, I used to be jealous of the, guitarists who started when they were five, the classical guitarists, because I saw that they really had an advantage with technique, right? From doing it from such a young age. Um, so I had, I had to play catch up since I started relatively late, you know, being 15 when I, I started classical guitar. Um, but, but now, you know, in hindsight, I'm, I'm very thankful for the, the diverse background, the background in percussion, and in popular f- formats and things like that, I think it just adds a sort of a flexibility to your playing, um, if you will. Yeah. And it sounds like that's something, that flexibility is something you would recommend to serious gu- guitar students, uh, no matter what genre they decide to end up in. Right. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. And that's what's un- unique about the classical which is a bit of a misnomer, right? Like, what does that mean, classical guitar? Yeah. Well, we know it means the the you know the traditional Spanish guitar with the nylon strings. But in if you go to a classical guitar, you know, I'm using air quotes <laughs> um, concert, you're going to hear repertoire that varies um, incredibly from you know Middle Eastern Turkish music to Chinese themes to hmm. uh, tangos and things of that nature that kind of get more into like a jazz idiom. Um, so the the repertoire is so vast and varied that you can't really say, oh, I only play, you know, classical music. And that, what does right. that mean? Well, the classical, that's just a period in time, right? We have the, the Baroque, Renaissance, Baroque, Romantic, classical, neoclassical, and, and neo-romantic. And focused in Europe too, right? Exactly. Yeah, focused focus. in Europe, right. But it more it more refers to the technique of playing with your the fingernails of the right hand um, yeah. and holding the guitar in, in a certain way where you can access the entire fretboard. Um, yeah. Uh, so interesting. So yeah, the the repertoire is is so varied that I think it's it helps to dabble in different areas. So I always encourage students to do that. Like, hey, let's just do some flamenco. Let's learn some jazz. Let's learn some right. tangos. Um, so. Yeah. So you've studied in multiple countries and multiple schools from Germany to Texas to uh, New England Conservatory. 
And you've already, you've mentioned a couple of teachers by name. Is there one who really stands out as being the most influential in your life and what made them so special? Mm. Well, I'd have to, I'd have to mention two names because it's like the yin and the yang, right? They, they're so very different from each other, but they complement one another. Um, and that, the first one I'll say is Elliot Fisk, right? With his sort of robust and in-your-face playing style. I always uh, describe his playing as, as an artist that, that, you know, throws the painting on the canvas, but you step away from it and it's just, you know, it's incredible what you see. And then there's the, the, the inverse of that, which is the, the, um, you know, the pinpoint detail that everything is perfect in the right place. And, um, you know, there's, there's zero, zero things are left to chance. Um, and that would be, uh, my teacher at Florida state, Bruce Holtzman. So I, I got sort of the, the, you know, the inspirational interpretive lessons from Elliot and learned that, you know, the, the soul behind the music and the, um, how to get the emotion out of it. And what, what is a, what, how do you make phrases that are going to tug at people's heartstrings and really getting the beauty out of the instrument and the, and the, you know, tonal variation to just play as expressively as possible. That's, I got a lot of that from new England conservatory um, through interpretation courses that I took with um, various professors there. Um, and then I needed to get cleaned up, right? I needed, okay, I've had that and, um, could play very expressively and all that, but then I needed that rec- record quality detail work. And that's where Bruce comes in and has a great, fantastic ear for detail. Um, but I'd say if, if I had to say one influenced me the most, it would probably be the former Elliot. You know, it's just the, the, way, yeah. of, the way of thinking about music and connecting it to life and all that. Um, there's lots of, lots of two and a half, three hour lessons that went yeah. off about <laughs> wow. those things. So. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, John. We really appreciate you being with us today and telling us about your experience teaching remotely and teaching so many different varied styles of guitar. Thanks Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity, Naylan. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>